It's Tuesday, August 14th, and this is The Daily Dive. He goes by many names. The Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, and the Visalia Ransacker. But now Joseph James D'Angelo has been charged with his 13th murder. In 1975, he shot and killed Claude Snelling as he tried to prevent D'Angelo from kidnapping his 16-year-old daughter. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, joins us for the latest charges that are believed to be the first murder of the Golden State Killer. Next, the FBI has fired Peter Strzok, the counterintelligence agent who has become emblematic of a deep state effort to undermine President Trump. In communications with FBI lawyer Lisa Page, Strzok said, no, he won't. We'll stop it when asked if Trump would become president. Eli Stokels, White House reporter for the LA Times, joins us for more on the firing and Peter Strzok's GoFundMe page. Finally, have you ever wondered why your Uber driver is taking the long way home? It's an age-old practice coming out of the cab industry called long hauling, but now it's made its way to ride sharing. Drivers say that it isn't taking advantage of consumers since Uber has to pick up the tab for the extra mileage. Greg Bensinger, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, tells us about long hauling and why drivers say it's an easy way to make some extra money. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have identified Joseph James D'Angelo as a sole suspect in the Visalia Ransacker crime series and the murder of Claude Snelling. These crimes and the manner in which they were committed brought fear to this quiet community during the 18-month period in which the Visalia Ransacker terrorized this city in the mid-1970s. Joining us now is Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee. We have an update in the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer case against Joseph James D'Angelo. He was known by so many names at different parts of his career as a criminal, I guess you could say. So he was also known as the original Night Stalker, the Diamond Knot Killer, and specifically the Visalia Ransacker. Officials have added a 13th murder charge to him now. They say that this might have been his very first murder when he was known as the Visalia Ransacker. What do we know about that, Sam? Well, they think that his crime spree began as the Visalia Ransacker. This was someone who, from about April of 74 through December of 1975, broke into 100 homes in Visalia. And a lot of the uh, patterns that they saw in those burglaries match up with what they saw later in Sacramento when the East Area Rapist crimes began. This person would go into these homes, take some items, move other items, ignore valuables, and just make it known that an intruder had been inside the house. And sometimes the uh, suspect would call the house later on. Authorities believe that he would stake out the homes well in advance so he'd know what the patterns were, people coming and going. And then he typically would escape on a bicycle into the night. So the new charge was in the murder of a man named Claude Snelling. I want to play a little clip of audio from his daughter, Elizabeth Hupp. She spoke to CBS News about it. And that's when I heard my dad yell, and the man with the ski mask pushed me to the ground, turned, shot my dad twice as he was coming through the back door. He's always been my hero. I would not be here today, I'm sure of it, if it hadn't been for him. So this was a night in September 1975. What happened that night? Well, she was 16 at the time, and Claude Snelling, her dad, was a 45-year-old uh, college professor who was awakened in the middle of the night, he heard a noise, and he went out toward the garage carport, and he saw a man in a ski mask trying to abduct his daughter, take her out of the house. And so he confronted the suspect who shot and killed Snelling. So that's the first incident of violence that's attributed to this suspect. 
the girl obviously survived unharmed, but the case went unsolved for you know almost 44 years until when the charges were filed. And what they think happened is the suspect had burglarized the home two nights earlier and had stolen a bicycle. And he used that bicycle to uh, escape from the Snelling residence. They found it a block away after the shooting. But they were able to trace the bullets that killed Snelling back to a gun that had been stolen in August of 75 in a previous burglary. Yeah, it's so creepy to know that he had already made it all the way in and out of the house, pretty much undetected to the family. And as you say, they connected all this other evidence to him. There was no DNA evidence involved. I know he was ultimately caught later as a result of DNA connecting the DNA dots, but this was not the case here. That's right. But the um, district attorney and the police chief here in Visalia say that there is physical evidence. They have witnesses who saw the suspect at the time of the crime, who they've shown composites to and photos of Angelo from that period, who supposedly have identified him. And they also say that they have physical evidence, which they won't discuss, of course, but something other than DNA. And you had mentioned that he had ransacked over 100 homes, but this is the only charge that they were able to make because the statute of limitations had expired for pretty much everything else. What happened after that? Because it was about three months or so later that the crimes there in Visalia stopped. He obviously moved on, but there was an officer who had an altercation with him. Right. What happened is Visalia police by then were extraordinarily concerned, and so they had stakeouts out all over town at night. And there was an officer, Bill McGowan, who was in a garage when he saw someone looking through the window at a woman. And he confronted that suspect. That suspect affected some kind of effeminate voice saying something to the effect of, please don't hurt me, and then pulled out a gun and fired at McGowan. And luckily, the bullet hit McGowan's flashlight. The suspect got away, McGowan survived, and got a look at him. And so that provided authorities the first good composite description of the Visalia ransacker. But what happened after that is the crime stopped there. They never had any more in Visalia. And suddenly in Sacramento, within a couple of months, the East Area Rapist series of crimes began. The crimes intensified in their viciousness and and frequency, I guess, because they, you know, he's charged with the, the 12 other murders and 50 rapes up and down the state after that. What's next for Joseph James D'Angelo? He's back in court in September, I believe, but prosecutors haven't even decided where they're going to be holding all these court hearings. In the next month or so, the five DAs from the counties where there are murder counts are expected to decide where they're going to try this. Their hope is that they can do it all in one county, in one courthouse, and that prosecutors from each county will work as a team to prosecute him. There was some thought early on that it likely would head south to Santa Barbara, one of the counties where there's more murders and DNA evidence. The two murders in Sacramento, there's no DNA evidence on. The one in Tulare, there's no DNA. And so they may move it south just because the evidence is stronger, but no decision's been made on that yet. Is this it for him, or are there any other open cases that they might be trying to connect to D'Angelo? It sounds like this is the only one left in Tulare that they consider a serious possibility, but there are some in the East Bay that are still under investigation, and so it's possible that there could be more charges. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In terms of the text that 
we will stop it. You need to understand that that was written late at night, off the cuff, and it was in response to a series of events that included then-candidate Trump insulting the immigrant family of a fallen war hero. Joining us now is Eli Stokels, White House reporter for the Los Angeles Times based out of their D.C. bureau. Former FBI agent Peter Strzok, we just found out that he was fired for those anti-Trump text messages he was sending with a colleague. What else do we know about that? In a way, this is sort of a long time coming and and not a shocking resolution to this situation, given that uh, FBI Director Ray back in June said that the investigations were ongoing into things that agents may have done that were against protocol and, and more discipline might have been coming. So in that sense, not all that surprising, but in another sense, kind of like everything with this administration, it's astounding because it's incredibly unusual, perhaps unprecedented for the deputy director of the FBI to overrule the independent arm within the bureau that deals with discipline cases and personnel matters to overrule them and to say after they suspended Strzok for 60 days and demoted him to say that's not enough. The deputy director, David Bowditch, sent the letter to Strzok and his attorney that uh, despite the independent review and that decision that they were going to go further and they were going to fire him. The president was very happy about this. He tweeted about it saying, you know, he's finally gone. But he had kind of become emblematic of this deep state notion. People within current government that don't want President Trump to be there and they want they want to undermine him any chance they can. And he was always pointing to those text messages between him and Lisa Page to kind of prove that, hey, you know, the deep state is against me. These people in the DOJ and the FBI are all against me. You're exactly right. I mean, the reason that Peter Strzok is a name that people know is because the president, his lawyers and his defenders in Congress have pulled those text messages out, highlighted them, talked about them, put them up for everyone to see and said, see, this proves our point that the intelligence community is biased and against the president. Uh, It's part of a larger political response, really, to the ongoing Russia probe. The text between Strzok and the FBI attorney, Lisa Page, who he uh, was having an affair with, something that people will tell you and government agencies and in all walks of life is not uncommon or illegal. <laughs> right. But well, everybody's you know, dirty laundry gets aired out in something like sure this. It sure does. Yeah. It's, it's very Washington, this whole thing. And the text messages that were sent during 2016 as the FBI and Strzok himself were involved in investigations into not just Russian collusion, but also the Hillary Clinton email server. Strzok and Page were texting each other back and forth at one point uh, out of frustration over what Strzok later explained was the president's comments about a gold star family said that we'll stop him. And even though an independent review found that, as Strzok claims, that he never allowed his personal political views to influence his work at the FBI, that was something that was damaging to the perception, especially with the president and his political allies highlighting it all the time. Granted, there was a larger review of hundreds of text messages between Strzok and Page, and turns out we're texting and and saying critical things about all kinds of people, including Hillary Clinton, including Bernie Sanders, including Congress as a whole, all sorts of people. You know, Peter Strzok was a 22-year veteran of the FBI, one of the senior counterintelligence agents, and you would just naturally think that you would know to keep some of these personal texts and messages off of your government-issued phone. That's how they were able to get into all that stuff. I mean, the case would have been totally different if he had used a personal cell phone for that. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, whether or not the decision to use a work phone instead of a personal phone, I don't know if that's a smoking gun in terms of saying, oh, well, it had some impact on his work, but it certainly was a mistake. And he's uh, struck has admitted that. And I think hindsight being 2020, he wishes he hadn't done that. But uh, and I think, you know, generally speaking, he seems to have, at least through his attorney, accepted the discipline up to this point in terms of obviously being 
yanked off the Mueller team. I mean, when Mueller found out about these text messages um, last year, sometime around a year ago, uh, Strzok was pulled off of the Mueller investigation team the next day. And so, you know, that is also worth pointing out, I think, in terms of, um, you know, as the president, a lot of people around him are trying to claim that, well, see, Strzok and, and all these, quote, as he, Trump will say, these angry Democrats um, who are in charge of the investigation, you know, again, they're just uh, they're just continuing to sort of beat this drum. Um, and, you know, Strzok has um, given them some um, you know, reason for that to be, uh, for people to look at it and say, you know, that that makes sense. Maybe the FBI is out to get him. But it's also worth pointing out that Mueller, a Republican himself, um, has, you know, at first uh, blush of finding out about these things, uh, took Strzok off the team. Uh, he was further demoted um, within the FBI, is put in a human resources job, uh, suspended 60 days. And even after that independent review, um, which was overruled, he's now been fired. Well, I think in the end, Peter Strzok will probably be okay. His team started a GoFundMe page for him. Last time I checked, which was just a few minutes before this interview, he was already at $50,000 that they had raised. Uh, they were trying to get $150,000 for him. It's so, remarkable. He'll probably be out there at the Iowa State Fair before the end of the week with Michael Avenatti and Eric Swallow running for president. Hey, I, I mean, it's a strange it. world we live in, in which these you know FBI agents and 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 people like this can be uh, come celebrities um, just because everything is so politicized. Eli Stokels, White House reporter for the Los Angeles Times, based out of their Washington D.C. bureau. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In this case, drivers feel like they're not getting paid enough. Uber takes uh, too much of what they think they're owed, and they'd like to make more. Joining us now is Greg Bensinger, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to talk about Uber in the news lately. They're using an age-old practice from the yellow cab industry, something called long hauling. What are they doing? That's right. Well, these are the drivers. What they're doing is going the long way to get somewhere, and it's, and it's to drive up the fare. We all assume as passengers that they're taking the most direct route because that's what their GPS tells them to do. But in fact, drivers have discovered that if they go a couple extra miles, they can make a few more bucks, and it doesn't change the price for passengers. It's a little complicated why, but passengers pay upfront a fixed fee that Uber calculates based on what Uber or Lyft thinks the, the fare will be, considering traffic and how many miles it'll take to get there. And that's the fee that passengers pay, and that doesn't change no matter what the driver does. So drivers are discovering that that doesn't always match the fare they get at the end, which is calculated just like old-time yellow taxi meters. However long it takes to get there and how many miles, that's what they pay, and they want to get a full share of what they think they're owed. They say that the consumer doesn't necessarily pay for it, but you could, you know, with more time, it depends on how crazy that alternate route can be. I think a spokesperson for Uber said that this happens in less than 1% of trips. So it's not typical behavior. It's pretty rare. Why did you guys look into this? Was there a lot of uh, readers that said this was happening or just a lot of different feedback saying that a lot of drivers are doing this? It was some of that, but also driver. it's something that drivers talk about. In this case, drivers feel like they're not getting paid enough. Uber takes uh, too much of what they think they're owed, and they'd like to make more. And there's a lot of studies that show that drivers don't make minimum wage. 
I would point out there's a lot of studies that say they make well over minimum wage. There's a real controversy there, but ask any driver and they'll tell you they would like to make more money than they do. Right. And one of the ways is to find loopholes in the system that they think they can take advantage of. And this is one of them. So it's just this notion that they're taking back what they're owed. They're doing the hard work out in the road and I want to get my fair share. I live in Los Angeles and I take Uber or Lyft, you know, depends uh, quite often, actually, some of these shorter trips and just not having to deal with parking. It really makes it a lot easier for myself. And we do expect a lot from our drivers. I know myself, I get angry when they're not taking that direct route or when I know, hey, you know, where are you taking me? And that's based on me being a local and knowing the roads very well. But if I'm out abroad somewhere else in another state, another city that I'm not familiar with, I very much will trust the driver so they can get away with this super easy. It would seem so. And even locals in a lot of cities today don't know how to get around their city without the GPS. And so it's true. there are ways to take advantage of that. But a lot of drivers don't feel that they're taking advantage of the passenger. They say they're careful about what routes they take, that it won't add meaningful time to the trip. It's not on short routes that in the first place, it just doesn't make sense. So it's sort of longer trips out to the airport or the stadium out of town. And if it adds two or three minutes, they feel like it might be worth it. They're getting a few extra bucks from Uber or Lyft and the passenger doesn't suffer much. So everybody wins. So how does this work? Uber and Lyft take about 25% commission from a fare how much are the drivers charging and making off of, uh, you know, each mile per minutes, all that stuff? Yeah, it's tricky. Every city has its own calculation, but it's typically around a dollar to a dollar twenty-five per mile and fifteen to twenty-five cents per minute. And then Uber takes twenty-five percent of each of those. So if a fare ends up being ten dollars, Uber keeps e two fifty. That's what they're working it with, and. You know, there's something else to consider, which is there are many drivers who feel like I'm going to do what the system says. Uber and Lyft have worked it out in a way that makes sense for us, makes sense, makes sense for the passengers. And if I just get more fares, that's really where I win rather than eking out every dollar from each fare I pick up. Right. In your article, you even say that, you know, a lot of these drivers have alternate apps that they're even using so they can find out different routes. And I've been in plenty of them where I noticed that there is a driver that has a separate cell phone with running the Waze app. But even in the article, you you did a little bit of math and, and some rides you can make an extra five to six bucks, which is, you know, a ton on, on a small ride, short ride or anything like that. You know, I would caution any passenger from assuming that if they go don't, don't go the route that Uber's app suggests that they're all out to take a few extra bucks from Uber. Many of them know their way around and they, they know that there's construction on this uh, freeway or it's a big mess and I'm just not worth it. I mean, you also do mention that a lot of drivers do go on web forums and whatnot and, and discuss other methods to trick the system. Any of those other ones you can let us in on? Yeah, sure. Uh on some of these really short trips, drivers don't feel like it's worth their time if they're earning under $5. One technique they described is making themselves hard to find. They show up near the location. They call the passenger, which is a big no-no on these platforms. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to pick them up and, and find out where they're going. But they'll call ahead and find out where they're going. If it's not worth their time, they, they'd rather get the cancellation fee, which is $5. This sort of came up um, in a few stories recently. There's Some drivers are faking damage to their car, such as vomit. They'll fake pictures, send it to Uber, <laughs> yeah. and they get a fee for a cleaning fee of right. 80 to $150. Look, you know, any system that anybody creates, there's going to be ways to get around it. It's a tough living being a driver, and they're looking for every advantage they can get. Right. As I said, we expect a lot from our drivers. So even as, as a consumer, you got to be careful and, and know what you're getting into and know your route. I think that will probably help. Greg Bensinger, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.